Now let's turn and look at our scripture that can be found in the inside of your bulletin. This is uh, Luke 17, 1 through 10. Luke 17, 1 through 10. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you've been enjoying the Olympics. It was neat to watch uh, Michael Phelps gain his 54th gold medal last night uh, in the uh, team relay. What a great story, uh, you know, how he has been able to really, uh, you know, win lots of golds this Olympics. Uh, it made me think of another wonderful story, the story of Roger Bannister and the breaking of the four-minute mile. You know, Roger ran in the 1952 Olympics, I believe it was. He was supposed to win gold. They changed up the schedule. He ended up winning fourth. But uh, Bannister had his eyes on another prize, and that was to break the four-minute mile. The four-minute mile, uh, it had gotten down to around 4.02, I think 4.03 in the 1940s, and then it had just stopped. Now, no one stopped to consider that maybe the reason for that was World War II. But nonetheless, it had, it had led scientists to conclude that breaking the four-minute mile was not difficult. It was simply impossible. That the body was not designed, the heart was not designed, the tendons and the legs in such a way that it was humanly possible to break a four-minute mile. Well, Roger Bannister, a uh, medical student at Oxford, thought otherwise. And so he trained every day with an eye toward breaking uh, that uh, time and the day occurred in 1954 there was another guy uh, John Landy I think was his name in Australia who was uh, going for it as well and Bannister knew this was the day uh, it was uh, it was wet it was cold uh, there was a wind but uh, he felt it was the day and so with 3,000 people gathered around uh, Bannister headed off uh, to race with six other guys and everyone knew Bannister was trying to do it and so they were they were pacing him and sure enough, as he rounded the corner and he crossed the line, uh, the person announced that uh, a new world record at three, and even before he could say what it, uh, the time was, the crowd erupted and the, uh, the impossible barrier had been smashed. The four-minute mile uh, had been broken. And indeed, it was only 46 days later than the four-minute mile was also broken uh, by the other guy. In fact, I think they run it in like one minute and 36 seconds now, don't they? Uh, I don't know what it is. 
You know, but back then it was impossible to do that. It was something impossible. And as you read the scripture, you get the sense that the disciples believe that Jesus is calling them to do something impossible. They scream out, Lord, increase our faith as Jesus is talking about the life they are to live, a life of not uh, making others stumble, of forgiving someone, even up to seven times in a day if they come. They're overwhelmed and they say this. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel that the life that God calls me to live as a Christian is an impossible life. I even say that, don't I? The Christian life isn't difficult, it's impossible. And so how is it that we can live our life in such a way that it shows other people who Jesus Christ is? How is it that we can have this kind of forgiveness that when we're sinned against so many times that we can have a heart that's soft? Where is it that we can come up with this strength, if you will, to run this proverbial four-minute mile? But more so, this is not something that is humanly possible, is it? Now, Jesus is saying, ultimately in this passage, that I'm calling you to live an impossible life. And I am the power that you are going to need to do it. And so the Lord calls us to say this. Command, Lord, what you will give. Excuse me, command what you will to me. But only give what you command. Indeed, you may demand all you need from God to follow what he commands. Because Jesus gives us the power to live the impossible life, but only as we depend on him. And so we're going to look at this passage, the commands that God calls upon the disciples and upon us. And we're going to ask and examine the question, how are we going to live the impossible life that God calls us to live? Number one, God calls us to live an impossible life in how we treat the world. If you'll remember for the last two sermons, Jesus has been speaking to the Pharisees. And he's been condemning their behavior using a variety of different parables. Remember the story of the prodigal son, which is directed at the Pharisees. There's the older son and there's the younger son. The younger son who goes off and squanders all of his wealth. And then he comes back and the older son refuses to meet with him. He's been speaking to the Pharisees and their hard hearts. And then I just spoke about the rich man and Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, the beggar, the invalid, who goes to the rich man's gate, and yet the rich man refuses to feed him. It's been directed to the Pharisees. Well, now, Jesus turns to the disciples. In fact, look at verse 1. He said, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Temptations to sin are going to come. By the way, this word sin, we've talked about it before. Sin literally means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. If you were to shoot, if you've been watching archery and somebody shoots the arrow and it does not hit the exact center of the bullseye, what they would say in Old English is, I sinned, I missed the mark. What this means is that God calls us to live a bullseye life. A life that is in conformity with His commands not simply to live and die that we are called to in this world, but rather to live after God's will and God's ways. And so Jesus says to the disciple that temptations are sure to come. If you are to live in this life, you are going to experience temptations 
Christian, non-Christian, that say you don't have to live this way. It's okay, you can aim wherever you want. But Jesus throws out a warning here. Woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, we are influencing people toward or away from living the life that God has designed them to live. We are influencers. We are change agents, if you will. And Jesus is saying there is a level of seriousness to how you live because that is affecting how others live. Indeed, Jesus says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now that's quite a, a, a picture as you think about it. A millstone, the millstone they're talking about is about 5,000 pounds. And so Jesus is saying it's better for you if I were to take a 5,000 pound millstone, tie it around your neck and to throw you into the Mariana's Trench then that you would cause one of these little ones to sin. Now we have to ask the question, who are these little ones? And how are we causing them to sin? Jesus is actually illustrating to the disciples the story of the rich man and Lazarus. If you'll remember the rich man who had all of this money, all of this comfort, who is living in this gated palace was living a life of luxury and lo and behold, Lazarus, this poor man who had nothing, was laid at his gate. And the rich man would walk across his path. It wasn't like he was unknown and yet for some reason, the rich man did not think he had any responsibility whatsoever toward this man. Even though God's law, which he knew when he went to Sabbath, said to have regard to the poor, to care for the weak and sick. Indeed, this word temptation to sin, the Greek word is scandalon, from where we get the word scandal. That it was scandalous in how the rich man treated this man with injustice and indifference. Think of the possible consequences for this poor man. Could not the, uh, the conduct of the rich man have caused him to lose hope in God? Here is my only hope, this rich man. I have no idea whether this rich man acted like he was a Christian, professed to be a follower of God. But could have you not have said, God has forgotten me? Because look, even this man who could do something about my plight does nothing. And so Jesus is now applying it to the disciples who do know better. You disciples are representatives of me. In fact, the word Christian literally means little Christ. Your lives are to demonstrate my love for the world. Was it not Jesus who said, you are the light of the world? And a city on the hill cannot be hidden. Neither does anyone take a light and put it underneath a bed. Rather, in the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What he's saying is that your life is not to be a scandal, or a stumbling block from causing people to sin, but rather it's supposed to be a beacon of God's love. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us, you must connect whom you love with how you live. 
See, for some reason, there is a temptation for us to separate our Christianity from our conduct. It doesn't really matter what my ethics are in my business outside of Sunday. It doesn't matter how I speak to my wife or to the checkout person or the person at my business or my friend or with those I disagree with who don't follow to my code of conduct. No, Jesus is saying it matters the words that come out of your mouth, how you live, how you choose to love. Did not Jesus say you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth? earth. There is a condemnation of Christianity in the United States and to some degree I believe it is justified. There are many who call on the name of Christ and use His name who are not Christians. And we are going to get painted with that brush. But when people look at Christians and Christianity in the United States, do they see little Christs? Or do they see hatred more than love? Is holiness mandatory for our lives or is it optional? Do we live just like everyone else we're supposed to be different but do we exhibit racism classism snobism in those who we look down on Jesus is saying to you and to me you are not to live like that you're not to lead others astray the way you live is serious business I don't know if you saw this week that the last Russian uh, track person, Daria Klishina, was banned from the Olympics. They'd already banned 136 of the Russian athletes, the whole contingent. But Daria, who had trained in the United States, had gotten a pass until now. And apparently new information uh, emerged that even that the scandal of Russian doping, state-sponsored doping, had spread to her in the United States. Where did all of this information come from? The name of the, uh, the head of the anti-doping agency from Russia had basically turned tails. He had given up the ghost. He'd given the information. His name was Grigory Rodchenkov. And this actually started, said Rodchenkov, all the way back in British Columbia uh, in 2010 when the Russians had finished six in the medal count in the Winter Olympics. And if you'll remember in 2014, uh, the Olympics were to be in Sochi, Russia. And so they spent these billions of dollars. But the word came down from the government that this was where Russia was going to be showcased. We had to do better. And the way to do better was through doping. And so an elaborate program began of doping and finding ways to get around uh, the restrictions. It worked in Russia. They actually won 13 more golds in Russia, though this information hadn't come out. Well, in the same way, they had this elaborate plan uh, uh, for Rio, where they had this uh, sponsored doping program. Well, Rachenkov, uh, you know, got away, or I don't know, made a decision, and all of a sudden, all of this information get out, got out and they banned Russia from competition. When they asked Rachenkov, why did you do this? 
he basically said, this was what was expected from the government. If I wanted to keep my position, I had to do it. My guess is it was the same thing for the athletes. Now, does that exonerate Rachenkov from his responsibilities? Absolutely not. He's guilty. The athletes are guilty. They had to make the decision. But the fact that it was the government, the very sort of people who are supposed to be protecting against this, this thing, who is pushing them along, pressuring them to live this way, is appalling. I draw a parallel. Certainly, in, you know, all analogies are not exact. But are we not supposed to be the ones as Christians who are the witnesses? Who are to show the world who Jesus Christ is like? Is there not a heavy responsibility upon our lives? And so my question for you and for me is simply this. Is your Christianity bigger than you? No, no, pastor. My faith is a private affair. What I do with God is my business. I have no responsibility to anyone else. Jesus says, uh-uh. Watch your life and doctrine closely. And so you have to examine. We have to examine our own hearts. How do I treat those who are around me? With kindness or with coolness? My co-workers, my co-laborers, do they see something in me? The people I don't agree with, do they see love and compassion and goodness? Or do they see hardness and classism and snobism? How important is holiness to you and me? In the words I say, the movies I watch, the entertainment I drink in, the idols I worship. See, Jesus is saying to you and me that we are the portrait of another. We are called to live a different life, a holy life, a life that is greater than the life that we used to live. And there are consequences. This brings me to my second point. Jesus goes on. Not only in how we treat the world, but how we treat each other. In verse 3, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now when he's speaking about his brother, your brother, he's speaking about each other fellow believers in church. You know, brother is a familial term, isn't it? Jesus is saying, you guys, you 12 disciples, others who...